it was the amazing experience of breaking free from the thrall of partisan tribalism. I mean, I had been part of that. And I could look around and say, okay, you know, how did we get here? What did we get wrong? And I went through a long period of really sort of self-examination. I thought I knew who my fellow conservatives were. And as it turned out, I didn't necessarily. Because if they were willing to embrace Trumpism, then maybe I didn't understand who they were. And I had asked myself, you know, to what degree did I contribute to this? Were there things that I said? Was I part of something that laid the groundwork for all of this? And those are painful questions to have to ask yourself, did you spend the last 20 years of your life being wrong? For more than 20 years, Charlie Sykes was the host of a popular radio talk show on the largest radio station in the U.S. state of Wisconsin. He was a stalwart of conservative circles and a proud advocate for the Republican Party. Then, on March 28, 2016, the party was forever changed when Donald Trump announced his candidacy for President of the United States. The rise of Donald Trump would mark a pivotal moment in Charlie Sykes's career. At the end of 2016, he left his conservative radio show, and just two years later he founded a national news website called The Bulwark. The website has become a haven for disaffected conservatives in the United States, who hope to stand their ground in the face of what they view as a perversion of traditional conservative values by the Trump-supporting wing of the party. The Bulwark was founded just one month after the collapse of the Weekly Standard, a magazine that had long been a mainstay of the conservative movement, and it indeed relied on much of the Weekly Standard's former staff to populate its ranks. So how can the Bulwark convince conservative-minded voters in the United States that Donald Trump is not the answer? I'm Chris Chermack, Monocle's news editor, and I spoke with Charlie Sykes for the big interview. Charlie, welcome to The Big Interview. I wanted to start with how the Bulwark's goals differ from what the Weekly Standard was. How would you describe your mission when you started? And, you know, how has that mission evolved over time? Well, that's an interesting question because when we started, it was really a stopgap measure. We were hoping that something like The Weekly Standard could reconstitute itself. We certainly were not The Weekly Standard. I mean, The Weekly Standard was a yacht compared to our Somali pirate boat. We had about 10 people, and you know, as opposed to this quarter century old, you know, highly respected journal. So we were not gonna replace the Weekly Standard. We had the same staff, we had much of the same mission. However, I think we were liberated from some of the constraints that maybe the magazine had in its, in its later days. But I think, you know, in part it was waiting around, we were going to wait for a successor publication. Well, you know, months, that months passed, more months passed, our audience grew, we became more confident in our voice, and I think created a distinctive voice, and people began, you know, thinking, well, who are these guys at the Bulwark? Well, they they knew who we were, but, you know, what is it they're saying? And publishing high-quality, provocative work on a regular basis to an audience. And for me, I mean, I obviously wrote for it, but also the, the podcast, which started off very modestly, and then to watch as it grew and grew and grew. I can't tell you what the market research would tell you about that. All I know is that obviously there was a hole in the, in the media space that we were able to fill, which 
Look, I, I think there are a lot of bad things happening in American politics and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, disturbing trends in the American media. But the fact that you could start a, a centrist publication from scratch and develop a, an audience in this environment, I think, is, is maybe somewhat hopeful. Now, when I say centrist, I mean, uh, we did not pull punches. We were not, say, middle of the road when it comes to Trump. Our approach to Trump has been, I would say, um, unsparing <laughs> from the beginning, unsparing and, uh, and quite consistent. Now, describe to our international listeners, if you could, your own personal evolution and history. You really switched after decades of conservative radio in Wisconsin to running the bulwark. It feels like your career is almost one of two halves. It does feel like a different life. There's no question about it. I sort of think of my life, you know, before March 28th, 2016 and after March 28th, 2016. But for a long time, I felt I, I had not changed at all. You know, for 23 years, I, I had a conservative talk show on the largest station in the state of Wisconsin. We were one of the main reasons why Wisconsin turned from blue to red, by which I mean Democrat to Republican. I always get that red mixed up there. It seems like it should be the other way around. So, I mean, I was, I was a outspoken conservative, very much involved in the conservative movement, very close to every conservative Republican leader in Wisconsin, including good friends with Paul Ryan, who went on to be the speaker, friend and supporter of uh, Governor Scott Walker, a friend and supporter of Senator Ron Johnson, and, you know, down the list. And from the beginning, we were all never Trump. From the moment he came down the golden escalator, he seemed to me to be a cartoon version of everything the left had said about the right. Racist, yeah. misogynistic, xenophobic. Uh, he was a man, clearly, you know, without fixed principles, who was a notorious chronic liar and a con man. And in Wisconsin, we saw through all of that. And I actually believe that in Wisconsin, we were smarter, we were savvier. We had gone through some very, very tough, very partisan political fights. And so Republicans in Wisconsin were much more engaged than perhaps in other states, and so saw Trump for what he was. And you might remember that Trump lost the Wisconsin primary badly in April of 2016, not because Wisconsinites liked Ted Cruz, but because they didn't like Donald Trump. So here's my evolution. So I don't change what I say about Donald Trump. I kept saying the same thing throughout the campaign, one by one. Other Republicans decided that, no, maybe, maybe it won't be so bad. We have to stick with the tribe. We have to stick with the team. And throughout the year, I could feel that the audience, which had been with me for 23 years, was shifting. I hadn't changed where I was on Donald Trump, but the Republican Party was changing. That was adapting itself to Trump. At first, reluctantly. Then I think there was a sort of transactionalism that we will get things from Trump that we wouldn't get from any other Democrat. So that would be the Paul Ryans of the world who said, you know, if I get my tax cuts from Donald Trump, I'm willing to look the other way for all of these other things. Gradually, that became more of a habit for Republicans. And here we are today where the Republican Party is more like a cult of personality than it is a political party. And I'm the one who's excommunicated. So in some ways, you could say you're, my evolution, it's also the evolution of the party. But when I left my talk show at the end of 2016, and I did that voluntarily, I was planning on doing that, it was 
the amazing experience of breaking free from the thrall of partisan tribalism. I mean, I had been part of that. And in a lot of ways, it was disillusioning, but it was also liberating. Because for the first time, I wasn't on the team anymore. And I could look around and say, okay, you know, how did we get here? What did we get wrong? And I went through a long period of really sort of self-examination. You know, had I not, I thought I knew who my fellow conservatives were. I thought I knew what they believed. And as it turned out, I didn't necessarily. Because if they were willing to embrace Trumpism, then maybe I didn't understand who they were. And I had asked myself, you know, to what degree did I contribute to this? Were there things that I said that contributed to this? Was I part of something that laid the groundwork for all of this? And those are painful questions to have to ask yourself because it also raises the question, did you spend the last 20 years of your life being wrong, you know, despite all your confidence? I don't have a definitive answer to that. All I know is that I could never support Donald Trump. I think that Donald Trump is a repudiation of every value that I thought was important to conservatives. And I'm not, I'm not going to go along with it. So obviously that changes my relationship to the Republican Party and it changes my relationship to what the conservative movement has become. Now, much of your site really does read like a pretty, you know, aggressive attempt to hold the line, to call out Republicans who are not standing up for more traditional conservatism. What kind of impact or influence do you feel that you've had on that, you know, national conversation since you've been founded? Well, that's always an, inter- that's always an interesting question. Does, does any of the things that we do uh, actually change minds? And I'm not sure what the answer to that is. What I will say is that we gave voice to people who otherwise would have thought that they were out on an island by themselves. There's something to be said for telling people, you're not the ones who lost your mind, and you're not alone in all of this. So I think that there's a certain you know, huddling together of those Republicans who were also appalled by Donald Trump and were watching every other institution on the right and publication on the right rush to his defense. So in part, I think, we create a space and a voice and a structure where dissenters can express their opinion and realize that they're not alone. Do you think that there are people in power who might read you and actually change their feeling of whether they should be going along with what's happened? Right now, there's something happening like in real time where you are having people who have been in the administration who are now coming forward and saying, okay, this was wrong. These are people who have come in from the cold, who um, obviously knew that there was an alternative out there and have become outspoken about what they saw in the administration. So, you know, what role did we play in all of that? Maybe sort of just to keep the fire burning on the outside saying, you know what, if you want to break with this administration, there's a place that you can go where your story will be told, where you will be welcomed. So, but I don't know. I don't know about what, the, what the cause and effect is, except that I'm sitting here going, before I, we started talking, going through a list of all of the prominent Republicans who have broken with, with Trump, many of whom actually have gone so far as to back Joe Biden. You know, people like, you know, former Governor Christine Todd Whitman or, you know, Meg Whitman, Colin Powell, Governor Kasich, Governor Snyder, of Michigan, former Senator Chuck Hagel, 
uh, former Defense Secretary William Cohen. You go through the list of you know former national security officials, uh, people who are alumni for in the Romney campaign, et cetera, et cetera. You suddenly realize there's a lot of these people out there who are now willing to stand up and speak out. And I'm hoping that over the last several years, we have given them aid and comfort. You know, it makes me wonder to what extent you feel even something like the bulwark is is creating its own sort of never-Trump bubble. You know what I mean? Are you, or do you feel like you are sometimes preaching to the converted and... How have you and your writers tried to sort of reach beyond that bubble? Look, um, I think it would be naive to think that there are a lot of Trumpers who read, uh, read us and change their minds. On the other hand, it is important to continue to document and comment on what's happening in a way that, you know, from a source on the center right. I, I don't know, but that's, it is an interesting question. And, you know, sometimes you know why you preach to the choir? So that they will sing. You know, part of it is that if you are feeling alone at a time like this, that maybe we are talking overwhelmingly to like-minded people. So to that extent, we are a bubble, but those like-minded people talk to a lot of other folks. And it's important to keep those ideas alive. And you just never know. I mean, you're, you're a writer, you're a magazine editor. You never know who's, who you're affecting. You never know what happens to those seeds that you're planting. So, you know, when this is all over, if we look back and go, hey, you know what? 15% of Republicans ended up abandoning Donald Trump, and that's why he was defeated for re-election. Then you'll say this never-Trump movement did was small, but it was very consequential. On the other hand, if it turns out that Donald Trump gets 96% of the Republican vote and is re-elected, then in fact, uh, we will have spent the last four years essentially talking to ourselves and persuading no one. So we'll have to see. All you can do is just uh, keep motoring on. Charlie, in your book, How the Right Lost Its Mind, you describe some of your interactions with listeners over the years. I'm curious if you could talk a bit more about that today. Have some listeners come along with you for this ride? Have they sort of gone through this evolution with you? Or do you think that you've maybe even convinced certain people? Do you get those kinds of reader comments? The mail that I get, and I don't know, I, I put out a daily newsletter. And one of the things I do every once in a while when I get overwhelmed by mail, I get a lot, a lot of mail. And I, I publish a lot of the letters to the editor. And I would say that the overwhelming majority of them will say, I am a longtime Democrat, or I am a moderate liberal, and I really like what you guys are doing. So what's interesting is that I think that we have created a market that is probably as much center-left as center-right, but I think that that also could have long-term implications going forward. Because I think one of the things that's happened in the Trump era, besides the really obvious and loud polarization at the ends, is this recognition that the center right and the center left can talk with one another, that there is a, a Venn diagram where we agree on things like fundamental decency and character and the rule of law. And I think this has been, at least for me, the experience of being able to sit down with people across that line and say, okay, we have been against one another. We've been arguing with one another for the last decade on everything from the Obama presidency to Obamacare to tax cuts. But 
here's what we have in common and here's where we share the same reaction to what's going on. And I think that going forward, one of the strengths of the bulwark is going to be, will be this meeting place for people across that center right and center left, because not all of our writers are conservatives. We have some, we have some rather outspoken progressives. We have people who are, shall we say, heterodox when it comes to political categorization. And I think that that, that can be a strength going forward. What you said there is a very sort of positive, optimistic take on some of the shifts that are happening. I have to say on the other side, for me, as somebody who's often tried and wants to reach out to the extremes, you know, wants to maintain maybe even some naive optimism that you can reach out to the extremes on either end and bring people, you know, back into the moderate fold. It sounds like that's been also for you really extremely challenging, even though you're somebody who might be better placed, certainly than me and many people, to try and do that, to try and reach out to Trump supporters. If you think of me as being an optimist, you've misunderstood me. <laughs> I struggle for optimism. I think all of this gets worse. No, I, in fact, it's, again, it's interesting that you bring this up because we're just having this conversation on the, on the podcast about how almost impermeable the armor is around Trumpism, that it is very difficult to reach into these bubbles and to convince them to come out. I tried when I was on the air, when I was, you know, at a, at a time when my influence was much greater than it is now among conservatives. And what I found is that it became increasingly hard because of this, of this pull, but also because there are so many ways now of rationalizing your position. And I mean, it becomes a sealed universe. So I certainly would not say that the bulwark is not going to convert hardcore Trumpists to moderation that because hardcore Trumpists are not likely to be converted to anything under the current circumstances. I, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but yeah, the, the notion that, that I could write an article or make a point or uh, send out a tweet that will get people to suddenly, you know, reevaluate a fundamental life choice they've made, it would be extremely naive. So I guess my goals are much more modest than I might have had when I was on the radio, you know, four or five years ago. Because I'll be honest, I mean, there was a time not that long ago when one of the things I sat down, you know, and thought about was who should we elect to the United States Senate? Which congressman should be reelected? Uh, who should sit on the Wisconsin Supreme Court? It was very much a results-oriented thing. And I got caught up in that sort of thing. And now I understand that if you're going to be a never-Trump conservative, you have to kind of embrace your at least temporary irrelevance. I know that we're not going to be influential, and I know that after the election, there's still going to be tremendous resistance to listening to anything we have to say in Republican circles. But I guess we're okay with that. What we're going to do is we are committed to saying what we think. We're not going to toe a party line we're not going to be tribal. We're not going to pull our punches. And we're going to do that as long as we can. And maybe that will mean that we'll lose some elections. Maybe that means we're going to lose some of the friends we used to have. And I think most of us in the bulwark have paid enough of a price all, already that we're willing to do that. And how do you see that battle going on into the next year or four years for that matter? At, at some point, you do kind of need to reach out to these people who voted for Trump once upon a time. 
How do you how do you see them eventually coming back into the conservative fold? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, you know, as I've, I have I have a hard time having my time horizon beyond November. To be quite honest with you, I, yeah. I feel like the the house is on fire right now. We need to deal with that fire, and we'll worry about redecorating the house later. But having said that, look, the fight doesn't end when Donald Trump leaves. Anyone who thinks that the Republican Party is going to snap back to rationality is very naive because Trumpism is going to be around for a long time, including Trump himself. I think that he's going to be a force in the Republican Party for at least the next four years. And you understand that he could actually run in 2024. I I mention this to people and they freak out, but there's nothing that stops him from actually claiming that he is a victim of this terrible fraudulent election and then running himself in 2024. And for people who go, oh, that's not possible, ask yourself which Republican would challenge him in the primaries and would be able to beat him. So this is a long-term fight to protect democratic norms, to find a way to get the party, to encourage those elements of the party that don't want it to become this sort of fringe right-wing minority party, because that's, that's what's going to happen in the United States. I mean, whether or not the Republicans lose this year or not, they are facing a demographic nightmare if they embrace Trumpism. If you alienate African Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, women, young people, you are not going to have a great future as a national party. If the Republican Party decides it's going to embrace white identity Trumpist politics, it will become a minority rump party in the next several decades. So that's where the fight is going to be. What is the party going to be? How irrelevant are they prepared to be? One thing you mentioned there is the democratic norms aspects. I wanted to ask you about that. Has it surprised you that it feels like democratic norms are not the priority for many people at the moment? You know, that other concerns, other issues, whether it's policy like immigration on the one hand or the Black Lives Matter movement on the other hand, you know, it, it feels like policy concerns are dominating the election and democratic norms can quite easily be eroded at this moment as a result. Yeah, I, on one level, I find it deeply shocking. On another, though, I think what we've learned is that a lot of these ideas were much thinner on the ground than we would have thought, that I think we took a lot of things for granted. And at least on the right, what has been quite disillusioning has been the willingness to give up long-held beliefs about the rule of law or about the constitutional separation of powers in the, in, in the federal government. So yes, but also this rise of this new illiberal, illiberal right-wing politics, which basically says, We don't care about democratic norms. Liberal constitutional democracy has not gotten us what we want, and we want what we want. We want power to impose our vision of society. And that is, you know, so in other words, we want the result. We're not necessarily concerned about the democratic processes. That is alarming to me because that's an international phenomenon, and that's becoming increasingly absorbed into the body politic of the Republican Party. And, you know, and part of the problem is this has always been the complaint against liberal democracy, is that liberal democracy does not guarantee an outcome. 
It guarantees a process. It often will result in your defeat of your best and greatest ideas. So there's always been that tension that the man on the white horse or the demagogue who can promise some sort of return to greatness or power or glory will always be more exciting and sexy than the person who talks about constitutional norms and constitutional liberalism. Charlie, what's your feeling of the quote-unquote mainstream media, but, you know, including the bulwark? What can they do to confront some of the fake news, conspiracy theory stories that are out there? Have, have you found a way to sort of inject yourself into that conversation that has ever worked? I'd like to say yes. I told the story of when, uh, you know, I reached my tipping point back in 2016, if I could. So I'm on the radio. I'd been there for 23 years. I was a trusted voice to conservatives. And for years, people would forward me an email or would forward me something from some sketchy website, you know, risingeagleliberty.com or something. And I would take the time to write back to them when I could saying, you know, this isn't true. Our, our most important asset is credibility. And we can, you can dislike Hillary Clinton, but no, there's not a warehouse in Ohio stacked up with you know, Clinton victims. This is not true. And here's the actual story. And I would send them a link from you know, NBC or CNN or NPR, Washington Post of the New York Times. And for years, you know, people would, would write back and they would say, hey, I'm sorry about that. Oh, geez, I should have checked it. Uh, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to do that. Maybe I won't uh, forward Uncle Hugo's emails uh, so quickly anymore. In late 2015 into 2016, what I started noticing was that it was harder and harder to push back, that you would send them the, the true story and they would go, well, that's just some liberal rag. That's the New York Times. That's the Washington Post. And I would try to send them some other source. Until it got to the point, about August of 2016, I remember saying to one of my friends, I said, you know, oh my God, we have actually, and because, you know, we have been criticizing bias in the mainstream media for a very long time, we have delegitimized fact-based media in this country. We have destroyed the immune system of the right to fake news. Now, I knew that in 2016, what I had underestimated was that once the immune system was destroyed, once the guardrails were gone, once the referees were dismissed, I'd underestimated how virulent the pathogens of disinformation would be that would fill this gap. So that now you have, you know, nice ladies in Cedarburg, Wisconsin, telling a reporter for Time Magazine, you know, those Democrats uh, kidnap and rape children and then drink their blood. Well, okay, where did you get that from? I mean, how did that happen? So it's very difficult to push back. I spent years trying to do it, and things have gotten much worse since I did that. Um, I wish I had an answer to that. The answer that, that I would have given you with more confidence a couple of years ago would be that it is absolutely incumbent on conservative publications to press back on conservative misinformation and liberal publications push back on liberal disinformation because it's got to come from a trusted source. But the reality is right now there, there are no trusted sources anymore. Final question, Charlie. If media is as powerless as you say there, even if it's a rather sad commentary on the state of things, how impactful do you feel a change in leadership could be in you know, tamping down some of that because you talk about the impact of a leader 
reinforcing some of these theories. If that changes, if leadership changes, will that make a big difference to you? Or do you feel that we've, you know, has the ship sailed on that too at this point? Well, let me give you the optimistic take on that. Because I, I, I don't know how you put the genie back in the bottle. And, you know, as, as long as the social media companies continue to deploy the algorithms that they do, this is going to continue to happen. But when Donald Trump leaves and when his influence wanes, I think it will have an effect because so much of our politics seems to be this cult of personality politics and his personal influence. And once that's removed, I think that almost by definition, you take the temperature down and you make it more possible to have rational dialogue. That doesn't mean it will happen. It makes it more possible. So for example, in personal conversation, you mentioned this before, you can have a conversation with really almost anyone in the political spectrum. And as long as you don't talk about the personalities at the top of the ticket, you'll find that people can, are willing to be reasonable and we can talk and we can disagree. It's when you get to, are you pro-Trump or anti-Trump that you have these bright red lines. And, and I, I think that, you know, like I've never seen anything like this. I mean, I was around for Ronald Reagan. I was around for the first George Bush, the second George Bush. I even remember Richard Nixon. And there was never a cult of personality around the president. Republicans were always able to disagree and criticize the president without being uh, excommunicated. This is a completely new phenomenon that we're experiencing right now, which makes it part, you know, so shocking, is the demand for absolute loyalty for you know, doing to the line. Once he's removed, I think the environment changes for the better. We're going to leave it there. Many thanks to Charlie Sykes. That's it for today's episode. The big interview was edited by Yolene Goffin and Sean Hickey. I'm Chris Chermak. Thank you very much for listening. Music